0: Go to Bluehost.com slash Wondersuite.
2: Welcome to Beyond the Crucible. I'm Warwick Fairfax, the founder of Beyond the Crucible.
0: Uh, A guy by the name of Kenny said something really simple to me. He says, hey, this is pretty simple. He goes, don't drink just change everything about yourself. And it's interesting, a lot of people get offended by that statement, but you know what? I think back to all those things I had done and all the people I had hurt. I uh, I never tried to stop drinking. I tried to stop stealing, I tried to stop lying. I stopped, tried to stop doing the things that I knew I morally shouldn't do. And he said, "Don't just don't drink and change everything about yourself. And I kind of pushed all my chips in right there and go, yeah, I want what these people have. What did those people have?
1: Not just sobriety, but serenity, joy, purpose. Things this week's guest, Doug Fleener, had been living without since the vice grip of addiction started closing around him when he was just 12 years old. Hi, I'm Gary Schneeberger, co-host of the show. The lowest point came decades later, when he woke up hungover in an airplane that had just landed, unsure how he got there or how the large sum of cash in his pocket got there either. Fleener shares with Warwick not only how he got clean from drugs and alcohol, but how he rebuilt his personal and professional lives by applying the lessons and practices he learned in recovery to his day-to-day existence. He's compiled those insights into his book, The Day Makes the Year Makes a Life. Transform your work and life with one day success. The key principle that undergirds it all? You can't change something you don't own.
2: Well, Doug, thanks again for being here. Really appreciate it. And I love just the thought about your book, The Day Makes the Year Makes a Life, Transform Your Work and Life with One Day Success. Just the concept that each day is what we need to focus on, not yesterday, not tomorrow. That is, uh, there's some profound simplicity. Often the, the best wisdom has a profound, but yet clear message. But before we get into that, and really the crucible that changed the course of your life, tell us a bit about yourself, Doug, growing up. And you're clearly, you know, a, a driven business guy, growth-minded. Were there some elements of your backstory that you know made it clear a young Doug was always going to be somebody that was uh, driven and strive for success and achievements? So tell us a bit about some of the, the backstory of a young Doug growing up.
0: Oh, I wish that had been the truth. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for having me. And uh yeah, I get invited to different podcasts, and I was like, "This is the one I know I qualify for, and we'll have a great conversation." So, I grew up in the Midwest. I'm the youngest of three boys. Uh, my parents were divorced. I was a latchkey kid before they even had latches on the doors. You know, if you well, my, one of my greatest achievements was being named wittiest of my senior class which means I learned early on it's easier to be funny than work hard. I probably would have also been nominated for least likely to succeed. You know, I just, uh, I was really interested in, well, probably a key point is when I went off to college, if you will. And, you know, I went to work, I was working full time. So I used to hard work. I was going to school full time and I was partying full time. And, uh, you know, something had to give. So of course, you're going to give up the hardest part. So school. And uh, so, you know, I, I came from kind of a world, it was a little interesting, I lived almost in two worlds, my parents were divorced, and one was in a, a lower middle class, and the, upper, the other was in an upper middle class. And so I kind of bounced and got exposed to different parts of uh, uh, growing up and, and having money and not having money and what have you. But you know, it was, it was really kind of destined, I, I talked about in the book, I was you know, I was actually I started drinking and using drugs at about age 12. I was I was a hell of a poker player by age 12 because I had two older brothers who uh, were also and, and my mother worked nights. So, you know, it was it was really is this point that just said, you know, I, I had a real interest in something, but it was an interest in kind of just getting lost, if you will, uh, in uh, alcohol and drugs. I ended up quitting at just about everything I ever did. When things got hard, I found the easiest was to just leave. And so, again, quit school, quit relationships. And so, you know, this is probably the one thing I've stuck with in my entire life, and that's living a day at a
2: time. Wow. So, Doug, I mean, obviously we've had people on the podcast who've had uh, substance abuse, uh, alcoholism, drug addictions. and Including me. I've been a guest (laughs) on the
1: show, and and that's my experience (laughs) as well. 26 years sober.
0: 37. All right.
2: Wow, oh, that, that is incredible. So, and you know, uh, you guys would understand better than me. But there's typically always reasons why. You know, it's it's the symptom, not the origin of of the issue. So, for you, when you look back at your substance abuse challenges, as you look back years ago, what were some of the reasons why you turned to those instead sort of an escape mechanism?
0: Honestly, I spent a lot of time in my first year in recovery trying to figure that out. And uh, I came to realize that I just didn't have an answer. I just, I like to go to that little point of leaving reality, but not going so far that I couldn't function, you know, but somewhere along the line, and this was the part is I grew up, my, my, my grandfather was a fire and brimstone preacher. I went to church Sunday, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Uh, But somehow I became morally, spiritually, and just physically bankrupt. And so I, you know, I I eventually became a liar. I became a thief. I became all the things that I knew I shouldn't be. But, uh, you know, it was, I mean, was it because my parents were divorced? A lot of people have divorced parents and they don't turn to alcohol and drugs. Uh, But I think, you know, probably the best answer is I was just, I think I was predestined to do that. I think. You know, when I put an alcohol into my body or I put any drugs into my body, uh, you know, there's a line that goes, you know, I have an allergy of the body and obsession of the mind.
2: So let's kind of move forward a bit. From what I understand, um, despite some of the things that go- were going on, you um, were in retail management, you were involved in a family business. So talk about some of the elements in your career pre-Crucible moment. A few there was a very clear Crucible moment. So Where were you in life leading up to that and, you know, business, family, and what have you?
0: Yeah, it was kind of, I guess I could almost call it one of my early crucible moments, if you will. I I had dropped out of college and I was working at a factory in the Midwest. It was a machine shop and we were eating lunch and we're sitting on some of these pails in a circle. And uh, Frank, and tells you about when it was, Frank was in love with uh, Lonnie Sanders on... uh, WKRP. And that's all Frank (laughs) could talk about. So that dates us, or at least dates me. And uh, uh, Frank was uh, sitting there and he just kind of spoke out loud. He goes, you know, I've been having the same sandwich in the same spot for 42 years. And my life flashed before my eyes and thought, oh, my God, I can't do this. And within, I think, a week, I quit. My father had uh, moved to Florida, and uh, he had opened up a marina, and so I moved to Florida in uh, the late seventies, early eighties, and uh, and this is how I got into the boat business. And this was the uh, cigarette running, cocaine smuggling of uh, <laughs> the eighties, and the flash and the gold chains and uh,
1: Miami Vice. Of, <laughs> and I was in
0: South Florida, exactly, and yeah. Miami, Miami Vice. And uh, I went down there and I was just in heaven. Um, you know, I did have goals. My, one of my biggest goals was I placed a bet once with a guy that I could not put on a pair of pants for a year. Now, I did wear shorts, but, uh, you know, that, that's the sort of kind of goals I had. And uh, so we had this marina and, uh, yeah, I was just calling. I was living my uh, Jimmy Buffett song, God rest his soul. And uh, you know, I just loved uh I loved that laid back and that boating and that sun lifestyle. Uh, but it then started then it started just get the best of me. My father sold the marina and we went into business and opened up a marine supply store. And so that's I'd been in retail. I started in retail when I was 16 years old. And uh so we opened up this store in, in uh Jupiter, Florida. it was back when uh Burt Reynolds Theater was really the the big draw mm-hmm. to uh, Jupiter. Yep. Now it's uh, Tiger Woods is a huge mansion. and, and uh, <laughs> so i um we opened up that store and we you know started to get successful, and uh, I started to do well, and then all of a sudden, all this cash started coming in, and uh, probably the last thing you ever want to have is easy access to cash for a drug addict. And that's when kind of things just started to change.
2: So I understand that there was a fateful uh plane ride. Talk about that plane ride. What were you doing? Where were you going? What because it feels <laughs> like it is one of the pivotal moments in your life. So talk about that plane ride.
0: Yeah, it had been building up. So uh, so a lot of my customers were uh were drug smugglers. And so uh I had the store, so I would order in inventory, trade the inventory for Uh, Cocaine or uh, sell the inventory, use the cash for alcohol and drugs. My father was my business partner and he couldn't figure out why it seemed we were always busy, but we were always running out of money and we were not doing well financially. And uh, it was, this was about, this was in 1986, 87, right in there. And uh, I had a, a, a very high. Daily cocaine habit, again, all coming from stolen money. And uh, it just started to, he started asking more and more questions. Come January of 87, I kind of knew the gig was up. He was going to find out. And uh, so it was the uh, Super Bowl. Super Bowl was earlier back then. And uh, we had a blowout Super Bowl party. And uh, I just kind of knew that uh, I was going to run for it. And so. Now, you know, when you're a, you're a guy in your 20s and you're every day drinking and drugging, you're probably not in some of your best decision-making mm. right, uh, mode. So I'm like, oh, where am I going to go? Well, what's better than Florida? Hawaii. So uh, I, I uh, partied and drank and drugged all night on that Sunday night after the Super Bowl. I drove, waited for the bank to open up, wiped out the... Uh, Whatever cash was left in the business account and drove to the airport, bought a one-way ticket with cash, obviously pre-9-11, so nothing was a big deal. And uh, I got on that plane and that whole thing, I don't remember a single thing of doing that. I just know that's what I did, but I don't remember it. So I had a one-way ticket to um, Hawaii and uh, I woke up. And I heard over the loudspeaker, we'll be landing in Dallas, Fort Worth, which was my stop on my way to Hawaii. So I just thought I was dreaming it. And I woke up and I looked and there was a person to one side of me, a person to the other side of me. I stuck my hand in my pocket and I had a large amount of cash. And I was like, oh, no. And uh, it all started coming back to me. And uh, I realized that this was gonna be it. This was gonna have to be, the gig was gonna have to be up. Just so happens I had a brother who lived in Dallas. And I called him when I landed, paid phone. And uh, he said, oh man, dad is mad at you. <laughs> and uh, so I said, well, I'll turn around and fly back home. My father was like, no, no, I can't see. I got to figure out what we're gonna do. So I had to sit around there in Dallas, waiting for my father to decide what was gonna happen. And um, I thought long and hard about it. And so I decided that uh, I was gonna give up the cocaine because that was really the problem. I'd maybe stop drinking for a year, uh, but I'd never give up pot. And when I flew back with that decision, and then so I had to meet with my father, was probably the hardest thing I've ever done.
2: So just take us back to that meeting and what happened when you saw your dad.
0: Yeah, I just, uh, he, he had said that he knew that I drank heavy, but he was kind of a party or two. It was kind of in our family, uh, but obviously he didn't know anything about the cocaine addiction. And uh, I think he was probably more upset with himself than he was with me,
2: hmm.
0: that he was a smart businessman. He'd been quite successful in life. He had owned marina, motels. Uh, he was a head of a clothing store chain. It was, you know, but sometimes we're blind to the people who are closest to us. So, you know, we we decided we'd see if we could save the business, which eventually we could not.
2: So I'm just curious, just talk about exactly what your dad said in terms of forgiving you and loving you despite what happened. Because it's, a lot of dads would have handled it very differently. They would have taken you out to the woodshed and saying, you know, uh, you'll never get a cent from me. I never want to see you again. And you know, i you know, I'll just do my best to make your life a misery or whatever. There's right. a, there's another track that he could have gone on. Many would, but talk about exactly what your dad said in terms of forgiveness and all that.
0: Well, I think one of the things that uh, you know this uh, this whole approach of living a day at a time and an key element in the book. You know, I learned it in recovery, but he probably showed that to me from the very beginning by never really kind of looking back and just what are we gonna do about it? You know, I I don't, you know, I don't ever remember him saying, Hey, I forgive you. But his actions were so clear again as I as I started to change my life, he became, you know, my my biggest fan. You know, I did not have enough self worth to do it for me but i had enough to do it for him and you know how could i not follow through on my commitments if he showed me that love and trust and support and, and the good news is that through the years as i was a different success you know i would send him money and i continue to send him money till uh, his passing and his uh uh, his wife is still alive today, and I just had lunch with her. She was up here in Boston two weeks ago, and uh, and also gave her some money to uh, for her trip. And it, you know, but it it wasn't about giving the money back. It was about owning with actions what I had done.
2: Wow, I mean that is powerful. Um, but that is a graphic sign of taking responsibility, and uh, maybe in some ways just a sense of love and respect for your dad and family and probably a mix of things, um, that is powerful. So, so you go to a 12 step program. So tell us a bit about the arc of the journey of recovery, just in terms of your spirit, emotionally, business, psychologically, it's probably recovery has that you would know more than me has a, you know, a lot of, um, sides to that, uh, that concept of recovery. So talk about what were those steps that you used to bounce back to you know, where you are today?
0: I remember the first time I walked into a meeting, it was the first day. And it was interesting because it was actually at an old Coast Guard station on the intercoastal. It was 11 o'clock in the morning. It was a beautiful Sunday. Boats were going back. It was sunny. And uh, I was watching the boats go back and forth in the intercoastal. And uh, they're there's a Kenny Chesney song that goes, "There goes my life," and you know, and I just sat there thinking, "There goes my life." I'm just, I'm twenty, 20 29 years old, and my life is over. I've never done anything without alcohol and drugs. And as a matter of fact, one of the first things I did was sell my boat because I knew you couldn't own a boat and not drink. It just would have been impossible. Uh, which I learned I actually could have. But you know, I went to that first meeting on a Sunday, and it was just totally. Foreign. Had no idea what these people were talking about. Didn't want to be there. And I went to a meeting on Monday night. But the meeting that changed my life was on a Thursday night. It was this big, in this big, bright room in Tequesta, Florida. I walk in and the laughter is unbelievable. And the lights are so bright. And these people are so happy. And then I look over and it's like, oh my God, it's two of my clients. It's two of my customers. <laughs> two old guys and they walk up to me one's on one side one's on the other and, and uh, fred goes we've been waiting on you and that's what he said so clearly in my store i lived there half the time you know i was just a mess and drinking all the time but you know what that day gave me was real hope that you know i could be a you know i could be in my 20s my life wasn't over I could be happy. And uh, that was really important because I just never, you know, I'd been, you know, I mean, I only drank and drug 16 years because I started at such an early age. So it was then that, you know, I started like, okay, we can do this. But then I would announce I'm going to, you know, not drink for a year, but I'm going to keep smoking pot. And, uh, but I'm giving up the cocaine because that was the real problem. And they'd pat me on the back and say, you keep coming. That's okay. Yeah. Yeah. You keep thinking that. And then, uh, and then I just realized that, you know, if I really wanted a, you know, I wanted my life back that I could, uh, uh, that I would just no longer use any kind of substance. And there's, and and, and part of my important story in this is, and it applies to everything I think we do in life is there was a guy by the name of Brian and Brian actually was a year younger than me. He had about a year in recovery, and his life was falling apart. He was going through a divorce. He was unhappy. And the guy who was working with him helped him, said, hey, you need to go help somebody. See that guy over there? He's that poor guy over there. I had this big head of hair and a beard. I mean, I was a mess. He goes, go help him. And you know, I I, I don't know if I would have made it through without somebody proactively reaching out to me. And you know one of the principles in my book and it's part of our recovery is I just call give to get, right? The more we give the more we get. But Brian knew that if he was going to change his life that he had to do it with his actions, not his thoughts. And he's going to do it with his actions with someone else. And so Brian just started showing up in my life. He started showing up at my store and uh then one night he says let's go to dinner. And uh this is also going to give uh, show my age. So we went to dinner and I was like, okay, where are we going? He goes, we're going to the Kmart cafeteria. <laughs> I remember sitting at the Kmart cafeteria going, oh my God, this is my life. And it, it was, uh, it was fabulous. I just, you know, I had somebody who was there for me, somebody who was walking with me, someone who's showing me the way, you know, again, I, early on, I didn't have enough self-esteem or care for myself and enough that I wanted to do it for me. But now I had my father, I had my Brian, I had Brian, I had these other guys that I had met. And, uh, and then a guy by the name of Kenny said something really simple to me. He says, Hey, this is pretty simple. He goes, don't drink, just change everything about yourself. And it's interesting. A lot of people get offended by that statement, but you know what? I think back to all those things I had done and all the people I had hurt. I uh, I never tried to stop drinking. I tried to stop stealing. I tried to stop lying. I stopped tried to stop doing the things that I knew I morally shouldn't do. And he said, "Don't just don't drink and change everything about yourself." And I kind of pushed all my chips in right there and go, "Yeah, I want what these people have."
1: Warwick, I'm going to jump in here because what Doug's been talking about for like the last gracious 10-15 minutes is a concept very uh, prominent in Beyond the Crucible, and that is this idea that you've coined, Warwick, about having a team of fellow travelers, people who can come along you, you know, alongside you and support you. From the moment back when you were talking about your dad. Uh, Doug, you said you didn't have enough self-esteem to do it for yourself, but you you know wanted to, to get sober for him, and now you've described these other people who've come alongside you. It's a that is a critical part of Warwick's story. A critical part of what we hear from a lot of guests is that you've got to be surrounded by people who will pour into you, who will not tell you all the time what you want to hear. Will tell you what you need to hear is the most important thing, and I think you've described that. I mean. The, that rings true for you, right? If it wasn't for those oh, folks telling you what you needed to hear, we may not be having this conversation,
0: right? Absolutely. Probably wouldn't be alive. Mm. And, and I think one of the things is that, uh, you know, I have an obligation in my life to give. And uh, because if somebody wasn't there for me, don't know if I'd be here. And so I want to be there for someone. And it happens in many different ways, right? It happens in business and helping someone. You can mentor somebody. Uh, there's just so many different ways and uh you know for me and the 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 way that it comes out in my life today is just is who am i the type of person i'm going to be Uh, i wake up every day with a very simple goal of just trying to be a better person than i was yesterday and that circles all the way back to 36 37 years ago of starting to get sober and so you know, I had to start, to, and you talk about taking responsibility, you know, so I had to start owning everything I did, right? I, I had to own the lying, the skilling, you know, the hurt relationships, you know, you know, I was terrible at relationships. I, I always laugh because I, you know, I was madly in love with this girl, but we were fighting all the time. And so, you know, how do I keep her around? Oh, I'll get engaged. <laughs> nothing, you know, nothing smarter than that. Uh, luckily, she escaped. And, uh, and we're actually good friends so many years later and, uh, you know, and I've apologized to her, but, you know, I had to start to own who I'd become and what I had done. And so, you know, the principles in the book, the first two are really so vital, you know, is living in the day and then, you know, taking responsibility, you know, I like to think of it as a superpower. So the only way I could move beyond what I had done and who I was was. Is to work in the day by owning it, and then who I could become, you know. And and obviously in recovery, there are steps you go through uh, to do that. And uh, I worked I worked hard at that.
2: So just before getting to the book, which I love, just the principles there. Talk about what led to writing that book. From what I understand, that you were successful in business at uh, you know Bose, and then went to some other company and quadrupled revenue. To so talk about. I mean, that's pretty remarkable in itself, how you go from being where you were, you know, being a, you know, an addict in recovery to a point where you're, you're actually successful. I mean, significantly successful. So how did that happen, that, that success?
0: Well, you know, and like you talk about those fellow travelers, there obviously obviously, there were other fellow travelers, right, to help me along the way. And, and uh, most of those were in business, not in recovery but yeah you know, we 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 end up selling our our our, our business and um uh, uh for really nothing because it was worth nothing and uh so i needed to go get a job and i'd been self employed and be able to drink whenever i want and do whatever i want so now i had to go get a real job and i went to work for uh the sharper image which was a big hot retailer back in the 80s and um and uh, uh, it was at a store in Palm Beach Gardens. It was a grand opening of a mall. And, uh, you know, and I just had this moment where, and this is back to little fellow travel, I was so overwhelmed with all the people there. And then I realized, like, I'm in a store. I'm wearing a name tag. I mean, I'm just feeling so sorry for myself, right? There's nothing wrong with any profession that you wear a name tag. But for me, I've been the self-employed guy to working, And I was wondering if I could jump off the second floor down to the first floor. Could I hurt myself or kill myself? Uh, Then I thought, well, I'd have to go head first. And, you know, it just luckily I thought well, thought that one out. But who shows up? That guy, Brian. I'm standing out in front of my store and he walks up. Hey, what are you doing? I didn't want to tell him. I'm thinking of a stupid way to kill myself at a mall. Um, and, And so I got through that day. And you know what? The sharper image taught me was how to have structure and how to be responsible and so sometimes when we hit that bottom and we have to change we, you know we have to start to learn how to relive our lives look I had been you know kind of out of control and just getting by since I was twelve years old and uh, you know and again it quitted everything I did so I had to kind of learn how to live and so that job started to give me structure and one of the things I loved about sharper images they had these high expectations and a lot of people thought they weren't obtainable But I loved reaching for them. And it was something that really taught me. But then I realized that if I was going to get ahead in this company, I had to leave Florida. And it wasn't probably all bad because I had to drive past a a lot of places that I used to go and see the people that were still doing the same things I did. And uh, after about 15 months in recovery, I started looking for a job, uh, another place to go work with in Sharper Image. I applied for a job in Boston. and And the guy district manager who interviewed me said, so do you, are you going there? Yeah. Family there. I'm like, no, do you know anyone? Yeah. One person barely, <laughs> but I'm going for three reasons. And he said, why are you not going, well, I'm going with uh, Larry McHale and the chief. And those were three Celtics players. So I moved to Boston to actually watch the Boston Celtics, <laughs> uh, figuring that I would stay a year, see the Celtics play. I grew up watching it on the parquet, no, the parquet floor. And that's really the reason I moved here. But I moved to Boston, started getting some promotions, met a guy who uh, seemed, he worked for a, a company. He didn't work sharper image, but he called on us. He seemed to love his job. He never seemed to be working that much. So I'm like, hey, how do I get this job? And uh, he went to, it was Bose Corporation. So I went to work and he got me a job at Bose. And sometimes in life, when you put the effort in, the luck will come. And the timing happens, and you know, I I went to work at Bose when they had one retail store. They were thinking of they were going to test a retail concept, and uh, it really was right time, right place. And so but there was a guy who was going to run in the division named David Wood, and uh, he gave me a shot. And you know, again, I was college dropout. You know, didn't have a great resume, if you will but he knew that I think he he really saw two things in me. One is he saw that I was a very hard worker and two is I was extremely hard at learning. And every, that's what he had taught me is, (laughs) excuse me, that I'm constantly needing to learn today to be better tomorrow. It's really where I really became somewhat learning driven. And so long story short, it took from both from one store to a hundred stores. And then I, um, After uh, 2001, after 9-11, I decided we had hired a speaker to come in to Bose and give a speech, flew in on his own plane. And I remember sitting there going, hey, I can do that. You don't get your own plane right away. Uh, (laughs) And I still don't have a plane. But you know what I had was Bose had this great cachet and uh, around customer experience. I mean, actually, the Apple stores came to us. Apple came to us when they were thinking of opening stores. And, you know, they've done pretty well, I would say. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so uh, so uh, then I just changed careers at that point and went into speaking consulting, did travel the world. Uh, did a couple of weeks down in Australia, down at the Australian college bookstores. Had a Still in touch with a lot of good people down there. And, and then I end up doing that for 16 years. And then a client talked me into running his business for six years. And uh, again, right time, right place, really worked out. But you know what, uh, and then after six years, I decided I'd step back, do this one more time. And really, but I kind of wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And I hired a guy by the name, uh, Mark Levy, Levy and he had, he had worked with some other people to say, let's find, let's find what really makes you unique. And I'd come up with all these ideas and they were all pretty generic. And he was the one who came to me and said, look, and, and he knew a lot about recovery. He wasn't in recovery. But he says, you're the guy, look, it's your path is what has shaped you in business. You need to just share that. And you need to share that with people in business. You need to share that outside. And so it really just clicked for me that I could take these principles that saved my life, that I've been applying in business successfully, but hadn't necessarily put, you know, names to them and what have you. And uh, it just became very clear, and I sat down and I, I wrote the book in 62 days. Uh, and only and it was fast and easy because, you know, I was right from the heart and and what I'd already done. That's how the book got written.
2: Wow. Let's talk a bit about the book because one of the things I love about what you just said is some people write books saying, uh, you know, clients or people I've studied and based on, you know, 100 best – well, best practices at the 100 top leaders. Here are the key principles. And there's nothing wrong with that. A lot of people have written great books, but this is a different book. This is, these are the six principles that changed my life. These are the principles that I lived that helped me get from where I was at the, the lowest of lows at the bottom of the pit to where I am now. Um, that's a different kind of book. It's, it's a much less common book. To say these are the principles I lived, not that I studied I- in others. So, just talk about. I mean, we'll go through these principles, but just the key principles of um, of just the book is uh, the day makes the year, makes a life. There's a fundamental concept in there, a paradigm that drives the whole book. Just talk about that principle of why, you know, just focusing on today rather than tomorrow or heaven forbid, yesterday. I mean, you could have focused for decades on yesterday, right? Oh, what did I do? And, you know, I don't deserve to be forgiven. I mean, you could have spent eternity focusing on yesterday, which wouldn't have been helpful for you, Uh, certainly not for many of us. But to talk about that key paradigm of the book of why focusing on today is so important and why that just revolutionary as as an approach. Yeah, it's
0: interesting because it's revolutionary. And at the same time, it's been a fundamental right for hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, and and millions and millions of people in recovery have also gone through it. And it's, it's the fact is that, you know, and and first of all, you know, just I couldn't live in the past. And I could learn, I could be not have to live in the past as long as I moved away from the person who was in the past. And so, you know, regret, uh regret is a difficult thing to live with. And the only way I know to not have regret is to take right actions. And so it starts with being in the moment and, you know, and through the years of working with people in recovery and also in business, you know, the thing I learned is that a lot of people, they have a lot of dreams. They have a lot of ideas. They have a lot of things they want to do. uh, But the fact is they just don't do anything or, or much. And so, you know, you know, I, I just make the, the the point that everything you want in the future, everything you need is going to happen in the day. And, you know, people want all this long term success. But whatever I want in the future, I have to do it in the day. And so, you know, it's also it, it allows me to be really stay very focused and to be really highly effective. and And I can do that because. I'm not worried about too much, you know, I'm not thinking about what happened and I'm not too far focused. I know what I where I want to go. I know my destination, but it's what I do today that gets me. You know, I'm going to go on a trip. if I want to go somewhere. Right. I I have to leave the house. (laughs) I have to do something. I have to go somewhere. And so, you know, I just learned in recovery and then I live my life since then is that it's all about today.
2: You know, there's one thing you mentioned in your book that I think is really important for listeners to understand about from what I understand your, your concept of success. You say success is not just about a career or earning your own business. Success is being a good parent, spouse, partner, friend and person. I believe success is displaying love, patience, tolerance and serenity. I mean, that's, I think, important. I mean, I'm not at all against business success, but certainly from my perspective, you never want your business or your money to own you. You know, you want to own it. And you know, your identity is not just about being successful in business. I mean, it should be more about your character, your family, how you want to help people, something a bit broader. If you're a person of faith, that's obviously one paradigm. But I think it's important just to talk a bit about you're looking you're defining success about more than just career. You're not against being successful in career or business, but you're saying your definition of success is broader than that. And that's important for people to understand. So just tell us a bit about your perspective on that.
0: Yeah, actually in the book I talk about, and just in brief, you know, I talk about the five different kinds of success. And so most of the time when we think of success, right, we go to financial success. You know, it's interesting because a lot of people who think they have financial success you know, they're they're leveraged out, right? They look good. They got the big house, they got the cards and all that. And uh, the credit cards are maxed and the stress is there. And, uh, you know, financial success is about just able to uh, earn in a, in, in, in an amount of money for security. And, and, and Grant, there's a lot of people who struggle to do that. And we recognize that. But, you know, there are so many others and it's, you know, it's about having personal success. It's about having... Social success, emotional success, you know, and, and also just in social success. Did I already say that one? Yeah. So it's about understanding that you know, our day isn't. I'm not professional, Doug, and and personal, Doug. Right. Even in my profession, I'm a dad. I'm a. I'm. I'm a partner. I'm. I'm this. I, I'm that. And uh, and so I, I think when we try to compartmentalize our life, I think we really end up selling ourselves considerably short. You know, I the word I try to also use a lot about is, you know, is, you know, I, I help, the uh, majority of my work today focuses on helping business owners find both business and personal success, which to me is encapsulated by happiness. You know, at the end of the day, and I feel good about who I am? You know, and, and, and I think we have this tendency that, you know, again, and, and if we think about on Amazon, right? I have business books and I have self-help books. Uh, But in reality, they're very similar. So much of these principles apply to to the same. So I think it's about making just sure that that you're really just this kind of this whole person.
2: So let's talk about these principles. Um, I mean, these are really fascinating. I mean, the first couple we were briefly talking about, principle one, the day, Everything you want or need in the future is created in the day, everything. And then taking responsibility is superpower for personal and professional success. So talk about those two principles, just the day and taking responsibility.
0: Yeah, well, you know, taking responsibility came out of uh, some early work in my recovery. And there's a concept called the spiritual axiom. And the spiritual axiom is that whenever there is anything wrong, it's within me. And when I was first taught that, I thought they were asking me, okay, so not only do I got to quit drinking and drugging, but now I got to be a doormat. Everything's my fault. And, you know, what I soon learned is the very simple but powerful concept that you can't change something you don't own. You can't change something you don't own. So, you know, Gary could say something that, you know, that I don't like, but I can... I get to decide my reaction to it. If I don't get to decide my reaction, I give all my power. So now I know you're probably thinking about what you can say.
1: Um, (laughs) (laughs) I will keep my own counsel on that. Yeah, there you go.
0: (laughs) But to be able to just take responsibility for everything that happens, you know, somebody rear ends you, you get yeah, you're a victim of the accident, but are you the victim? Are you going to continue to be the victim of now I got to do without a car? got to do without this? or you just take responsibility? call the insurance company right away and just do all the things and, and and I call it a superpower because it's something that most people don't do. They don't take responsibility. They might take responsibility. you know when you get caught stealing, yeah, yeah, you take responsibility. But when you but you know when you take responsibility for everything for your not only your actions but your reactions and and, and the way that you carry yourself and the things that you do and, and, you, and you talk about you know being human you know we say things that we probably shouldn't say but if you take responsibility for it right away and work hard to not to do it then not only does that help the other person and help the relationship but life is so much easier when you own everything that's taking place. And and look, and people go through a lot of terrible things, very terrible things. And and it's important to hear, I'm not saying that it's their fault, but they need to take responsibility for the moment and what they can do about
2: it. So well said. Let's talk about the next two, uh, principle three and four. That's intentional actions create intentional results practice relentless simplicity. Talk about those two, because those those are interesting concepts. Yeah,
0: and those two really do, uh, they go together. So let me go with first in practice and relentless simplicity. We know that we humans are extremely complicated people. And we can take about any situation and make it more complicated than it is. But when you constantly look to simplify and really look at just what are the core issues, that almost everything really almost always just comes down to one or two things, one or two things I can do differently, one or two situations that I need to focus on. Uh, but you know, the more variables we put into anything we're doing, uh, the harder it gets, the less likely we're going to be succeeding the more time it takes. And so I'm a big believer, you know, I, I, I worked in some companies that, you know, if, if, If your training didn't have a huge thump when you dropped it, it couldn't be a good training, right? That thump factor, and a book has to be 500 pages. And uh, you know, instead, you know, the way if you you know, there's brilliance in simplicity, and so it's it's somewhat kind of a real driving force for me, and it connects to that other one is is intentional actions. You know, there's a difference between actions and intentional actions, and when I know what I want to achieve. And I I look at priorities different than most people. You know, a lot of people use the word goals. I look at priorities. So again, I, I work with business owners and I, I run a, a Facebook uh, group for business owners and it's called the Highly Effective Business Owner. And the one thing I do is when I coach people is what are your priorities? And, you know, and so most of the time priorities are an element of, well, of task. Well, this is a high priority task or this is a low priority task. But in the reality is, is, you know, the priorities are the key things that are going to drive you towards those five successes. And so priorities for me, like my number one priority is uh, is one of my is recovery, spirituality. And then a second priority is revenue. And a third is membership growth. And another one is friends and family. And so when I understand what are the priorities that drive me to my success and happiness, then I can create intentional actions to get there. And, you know, I, I used to like a lot of people was just stuck in the task, you know, man, I could make a task list better than anyone. I, I jokingly told a friend of mine one day, I'm just going to start making a to don't list. So I'm more successful. Uh, <laughs> Cause I just, you know, I had more tasks than I can do. And instead, you know, today I, I, you know, and, and I teach this is, you know, I think starting your day with a journaling or in thought of what you want to be that day. And, what you want to accomplish, not as a to do, but you know, I I want to drive my revenue forward. And yeah, you got to do a social media post. Well, that fits into there, or that fits into clients, but it's understanding. And so intentional actions, when I know what I want to achieve, the results, then I know what I need to do. And so at the end of the day, have I done those things?
2: Let's talk about those last two principles, improve three things daily. And we talked a little bit about about this earlier, give to get. So talk about those last two.
0: Yeah, so it three things. Again, I'm a pretty simple guy, and I know that it's actions that create my success. And so a lot of times when we talk about growing as a person, we hear a lot of people talk about the 1%, if I'm 1% better. And you know, and bless them if it works for them, but, and I'm really good at math, but I have no idea what's my 1%. And so I couldn't tell you at the end of the day, so the way that I've lived my life for a long time is, is I want to be able to, at the end of a day, say I was able to improve three things, my business and my relationships, whatever it is. And so, yeah, is it 1%? I don't know. But I do know that if I improve three things a day in one year, I've made uh, 1,095 improvements. And so it's really about having intentional focus for growth and improvement. And I learned it from a manager I worked with at The Sharper Image. And he just taught me how to look at things differently to look at it in improvement mode. So it, it's really a very actionable principle. Just, and it ties into what I've said earlier, try to be better than you were the day before. And then the last one is really important to me is give to get. You know, the more you help others, the more you that you give. It, it's about that I know that when I get out of my myself, I can be pretty self-absorbed if I'm not careful, and uh, I can be pretty selfish. But if I keep the focus on giving to others and doing right things, that my life, good things happen to me as a result. There's a story in the book that uh, I've encouraged readers to read, and it's, it's about a, uh, a friend of mine. His name is Caleb. And Caleb... He he got in recovery when he was like 18, maybe 17 years old. And his uh person who he's working with told him that whenever he goes to the grocery store, that he needs to take the cart and not leave it in the parking lot, but take it to the corral. And uh he goes, What you know, what's that got to do with me not using drugs? And uh and he says, because you're proactively helping others. You leave that cart out there, it might hit somebody's car. It might keep them from parking. It could be a a person, a disabled person having trouble getting out of out of the car. And all the different ways to proactively give to others and one of the ways to do it is to take your grocery cart back. And uh since he told me that story probably 18 years ago, I have never left a grocery cart in the parking lot.
2: <laughs> Boy, so well said. Maybe just one final question before we close. As you look back at your life, what you've been through—you know, the early years, the crucible—how you've moved forward. Uh, when you think of your legacy, that you want people to learn from what you've been through in your life, what what do you think you would like people to think is your legacy?
0: You know, I think that he that that he showed that he that he cared for others more than he cared for himself. And, uh, there's a term that I really like is that each day he focused on progress, not perfection.
1: I am going to pull from principle three, intentional actions, create intentional results by doing well, one thing for sure. But a second thing, just because you mentioned the thing about the cart corral. So funny, Doug, I, um, After I got sober, I took it upon myself because I was a terrible leave it anywhere I could. After I got sober 26 years ago, I started putting the cart back. And I only missed one time. I've only missed one time in 26 years. And that was because it was a terrible (laughs) hailstorm. And I just, like, didn't want to get bruised. So I left Mm -hmm. it there. And I felt bad about that ever since. So I'm not the same as you. I'm not, you know... Oh, for whatever the number is. I'm one for whatever the number is, but my batting average is still low and, and so is yours on that. So that's good. Uh, the second thing that I want to do, I would be remiss if I did not give you the opportunity to let listeners know after this robust conversation how they can find your book, how they can find out more about you. Thanks, Gary. Um, so online.
0: I will say, first of all, the, the book, in The Day Makes the Year Makes a Life, it's available on uh, Amazon. It's also available at Barnes & Noble and other uh, online and other bookstores you can learn more about myself at uh, dugfleener.com and then also if you're a business owner I'd love to have you in my group and just go to the website the, the highly effective business owner.com and where we really apply these principles uh, to, for businesses to be people to be owners to be more successful uh, for them and their employees
1: and is someone whose last name is Schneeberger, and if I say that on the radio, I mean on the podcast, people are going to go, how do you spell that? Maybe there'll be people who aren't sure how to spell Fleener. How do they spell Fleener when they go look for you online?
0: So it's Doug, D O U G, and then Fleener, F as in Frank, L E E N E R. All right.
1: Well, W A R W I C K, the last <laughs> question, as always,
2: is yours. Well, again, thanks, Doug, for being here. Um, there may be some folks listening today that maybe. Today is their worst day. Maybe they feel like what was done to them is terrible, or maybe they might feel like the decisions they've made is horrendous. They're on that plane ride. Uh, they're about to meet, you know, proverbially anyway, with their dad. And um, they might feel like this is a terrible day. I deserve to be taken to the woodshed. Uh, nobody should believe in me. I don't believe in me. And I don't deserve for anybody else to believe in me. So what would a, a word of hurt be to that person that today may be that that worst day for them?
0: Well you know I love um, I love the concept of, of your podcast and, and your book because you know it's it's not it's not all about that worst day that we had. it's that how we came out of that worst moment. And so I, I think the thing that I would tell someone is that you know they're not alone that all of us have been somewhere where we didn't want to be. And I think the the thing that I've learned the most is that when you share with someone else, someone trust someone else and let them know how you feel and where you're going, I think that conversation will not only help you, but probably more important also it helps them. And that also helps you. But you know, we're, you know, we have a lot of similarities in our story of uh, you, you made a bigger splash than I did, and uh, but you know, but the same thing is, we we did things that we're sorry that happened, but we came from it, and hard to believe sometimes if some of your darkest moments are also the most important, that really end up defining who you are and give you a better life.
1: I have been in the communications business long enough, a listener, to know when the last words have been spoken on the subject, and Doug Fleener just spoke it. Um, So, listeners, until the next time we are together, please remember, as we hope has come through in this conversation, that we understand how difficult crucible experiences can be. Both Warwick and Doug, although they're different details to their crucible experiences, the emotions were very roiling, very difficult, very hard. Um, But as Doug just pointed out, they came back and they now both are living in their own ways. Uh, and in some similar ways, lives of significance. And that can be true for you too. Your worst day does not have to define you. Where you're at right now, if you've just come out of a crucible, does not is not where you have to stay. In fact, if you learn the lessons of your crucible and you apply them, it can lead to a great new story in your life because what that story, where that story leads is indeed to a life of significance. enjoyed this episode, learned something from it, we invite you to engage more deeply with those of us at Beyond the Crucible. Visit our website, beyondthecrucible.com, to explore a plethora of offerings to help you transform what's been broken into breakthrough. A great place to start? Our free online assessment, which will help you pinpoint where you are on your journey beyond your crucible and to chart a course forward. See you next week.